just said something that I thought was kind of funny. Um, he's saying, hey, today we're, we're concluding this series. We're looking forward to the conclusion uh, of the series today. Depending on what word you emphasize there, you could take that the wrong way, you know. You say, we're really looking forward to the conclusion of this series. We didn't think we'd ever get here, you know. Finally, we're wrapping up. Uh, today is, is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you uh, fathers. If, if you are, if that title applies to you in, in some way, as Joe has already uh, kind of said in, in the welcome, we just wish you a happy Father's Day. Uh, I can relate to that. I can relate to uh, just the feeling of, of joy that is, is ours as we think about um, that, that responsibility we have as, as fathers. So, so if that title applies to you, we want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Hope you have a great day. If, however, today is, is a little difficult, maybe you know, there's a little bit of sorrow that comes into your heart on Father's Day, I, I can relate to that too. Uh, and so I, I know this day can be a, a great day anytime we focus on our families. It can be a day of, of tremendous joy, but uh, at the same time, it can also be a, a, really, a really difficult time for some as well. So when we come together as a church family, we have those, those tensions in the room. You know, we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we're mindful of that uh, every time we gather. Uh, as we've already said, though, today we're here to, to acknowledge the greatness and the holiness and the awesomeness of, of our Heavenly Father. Uh, there is a, a, a saying here that uh, maybe you've heard before, and we'll, we'll use this as our jumping off point for today. That, that saying is, measure twice, touch once. You've heard that before, right? Uh, it kind of originated as a, a good rule of thumb in uh, the world of, of carpentry. And so the, you know, the idea is this, it's, it's better for you, you're better off to, to double check your measurements before you make your cuts. Uh, because it's, it's more efficient to do that. You're better off to take the time to measure twice uh, because it's easier to do that. It's more efficient to do that than it is to go back and to, to make up for a mistake that you might make. Once you start cutting the wood, if you haven't made those, those measurements properly and you make a mistake there, what do you have to do? Well, you're back to square one, you know? So the concept there, again, measure twice, cut once. If you do that, uh, you, you'll, you'll make fewer mistakes in the long run is kind of the gist, all right? There's actually a Russian version of this proverb that, uh, that takes things a, a little bit further. It's not just used to talk about the importance of measuring twice. The Russian version of this proverb is measure seven times, cut once, all right? Maybe the Russians learned something that it take, may take us a little longer to figure out, but the, the point is still the same, whether you measure twice or you measure seven times or whatever it might be. You know, the, the concept there is that you're better off to take the time to really measure what counts before you press out. And that's kind of the idea I'd like for us to, to think about here today, that measuring really matters. That making that kind of assessment, proper assessment, we might say, is of the utmost importance. And, and look, you'd have to have somebody else up here who could talk to you about the intricacies of, of carpentry. That's, that's not really where we're going. But, but would you agree that measuring and making proper assessments, not only is that a, a good rule of thumb in the world of, of woodworking, but more importantly, the Word of God emphasizes that in so many different places. I think you could argue that God gives the scriptures to his people so that we would know what really counts, so that we would be able to make proper measurements, so that when it comes to looking at our lives, we can assess without any degree of uncertainty, we can assess what really matters and, and what really counts 
I think that's why God instructs us. That's why God gives us his word, so that we would be instructed on what really matters. But then there's also this, not just to instruct, although that is certainly a huge piece of this. I think God also gives us his word to inspire us to live in light of what truly matters. And all of this sets the stage for where I want us to to wrap up this series that we've been going through over the last several weeks. This idea of measuring twice and cutting once. We're really getting at the heart of what really matters. If you have a Bible uh, with you this morning or nearby, let me invite you to open up to a couple of passages of Scripture here with me over the next few minutes as we as we kind of wind down this, this series. I want to begin uh, with a passage we've already looked at once, but it's, it's so important on this topic, uh, it's worth repeating again. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn over there to Ecclesiastes, we'll talk about this uh, in just a moment. A few weeks ago, we looked at Ecclesiastes, and we looked at these words from uh, the author who just identifies himself as the preacher or the teacher. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, what the preacher does, what the teacher does, is he kind of systematically goes through a lot of the things that we might be tempted to look at and and the things we might be tempted to say really, really matter. And the preacher goes through those systematically, and, and really his aim is to deconstruct all of those things. To say, hey, look, if you think life is really uh, focused upon, you know, X, Y, and Z, let me tell you, those things really don't matter. So you can kind of leaf through uh, some of the, the, the places in Ecclesiastes if you want to. Just look at, if your Bible has one of those, uh, some of those headings in the book of Ecclesiastes at different, you know, sections of scripture that are marked off, you'll see <clears throat> that he points out things like wisdom and knowledge does that kind of early he addresses things like success in the workplace things like power and authority and honor he looks at the pleasure that we derive from life the pleasure of of food and drink he talks about wealth quite a bit he talks about possessions sexual indulgence and prestige so all of these things he sort of systematically goes through and he says look if you want to say that life is all about this let me tell you it's not about that at all and so he takes down each one of these subjects with this phrase with this 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 line that he repeats throughout meaningless meaningless all is meaningless a chasing after the wind he says it's vanity it's his way of saying that all of that stuff is really just trivial so what he does essentially the preacher says okay what is the point of life that that's that's kind of his question and he goes through and and puts out answers that we might be tempted to put in the blank well life is all about this and he systematically takes each one of those out calling them out as vain ideologies as the things that when you when you pursue them ultimately you're going to find out that they don't have an awful lot of meaning and he does that with every topic that he covers except for one and i want to remind you of how the preacher closes out in the book of ecclesiastes it's, it's the final section in ecclesiastes chapter 12 look with me in ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14. 
These words will be on the screen. You can follow along there in your own scriptures as well. Ecclesiastes 12. It says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. So he's saying, hey, you want to know what this is all about? Here it is, okay? The point of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind. That's it. He goes on to add this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, uh, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. But that's the conclusion here to what the preacher writes. So the testimony of Ecclesiastes is that all these pursuits that the preacher identifies, the ones we listed a few moments ago, and presumably any other pursuit that we might come up with as well, things maybe he didn't cover, but that we want to say, you know, life is all about this, okay? All of those pursuits, according to the testimony of Ecclesiastes, they only find meaning, true meaning, in a life that is ordered around God. In a life where the fear of the Lord is Central and the commitment to live in obedience to him is central. Because the preacher, again, goes through and he says, okay, all right, in the end, all these other things, they're really trivial. They're really meaningless. Because in the end, only one thing really matters. Fear God and keep his commandment, for this is the whole duty of mankind. So men, as we close out this series... I think we need to return to this text and ask ourselves again this question. Are we measuring our lives according to what really matters? According to God's word here, are are we measuring our lives according to what truly matters? Or are we using some other false measuring stick? Are we using some other false barometer? I think a lot of us, I think many men are tempted to measure their lives and to determine the value of their lives based on some of these false standards that that the the preacher identifies there in the book of ecclesiastes you know what i'm getting at so so we know a lot of men who will measure their lives according to their level of wisdom or knowledge being the guy who knows everything you know i want to know a little bit about everything the guy who always has an answer there's a lot of a lot of men who want to measure their lives according to that or or they'll they'll look at what the preacher says you know and, and, and he talks about how you know these vain pursuits of advancement and and acquiring power you know a lot of times we'll measure our lives according to where we are in our careers whether we've advanced to a particular place or not or or use some of these other barometers you know like wealth and sexual indulgence sexual indulgence authority possessions so i just want to ask you know how often have have you used those kinds of barometers men to measure measure your lives how often do we use those as the, as the measuring sticks of what really matters in life it's easy to do we're reminded here in the words of the preacher but they're not just his words we believe they come from god so we're reminded by god himself here that those things are not of ultimate importance they're just not in the life to come It really won't matter how much you knew about this topic or that topic. It really won't. Preacher says, in the life to come, it really won't matter how far you advanced in your career or how much sex you had or how much money you accumulated 
or even what people had to say about you. In the end, what really matters, according to the word of God, according to this passage here, is whether or not you feared the Lord. If you lived with that loving reverence for God that we talked about last week, that's how we identified fear of the Lord. According to God's word, that's really, at the end of the day, that is what matters. So in the spirit of this, you know, measure twice and, and cut once, I would, have to just, I would just have to ask you what really matters to you. And if you've been giving too much importance to some of those things that the preacher identifies as false pursuits, as dead ends, as meaningless, I would just say, would you hear this word one more time? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. Centuries earlier, centuries before the preacher lived and delivered this word in Israel, uh, God appeared and he gave his commands to Israel at Mount Sinai. And so God enters into this covenant relationship with Israel and he gives them Torah. He gives them these 613 commandments that they are to live by. And in the midst of those, those commandments, there are many of them that were given uh, specifically to the king of Israel. Even though Israel didn't have a king at that particular time, God gives them these words. And so one of the places where you find one of, one of these teachings, one of these commands given to the king, is over in Deuteronomy 17. Turn there with me, if you will, now. I want you to see this, this teaching because I think it's really powerful and I think it has a word for us as we try to apply some of this in our own lives. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19. Look at this. Speaking of the king, it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And it's approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read, it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law in these statutes and the teaching goes on from there but but I, I want us to focus just on what he says here all right the king did you catch what he's supposed to do he's to have a copy of the law written approved by the priest okay so it's it's verified you know it, it, it's binding yep you, you got it okay he's, he's to have a copy of that that word with him I kind of picture the king and, and he's seated upon his throne, and then right just beside the throne, he has this copy of, of the law, a book, a scroll. I don't know what it looks like, but he's there, and he has it beside him. And he says he is to read from it every day, all the days of his life. He is to spend reading through this law in order that, look at it again, that he might learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law. Is that a powerful teaching? I mean, in my mind, that is, that is such a powerful word that God gives to Israel. It means that the primary responsibility that God had for the king, the primary expectation that he had for the king, wasn't to do, you know, kingly kinds of things necessarily. There's nothing in here about, uh, you know, passing legislation. That's not the king's primary responsibility. 
Nothing in here about, you know, brokering treaties or bolstering the economy or interacting with, you know, foreign leaders or, or, or commanding Israel's military forces. I mean, you could argue that those are things that are attendant to the administration. Those are things at some level, you know, the king has to do it or, or, or have someone do that for him. But none of those are identified as the primary responsibility for Israel's king. Primary responsibility for the king was to have a copy of the law and to read it every day in order that the fear of the Lord, the loving reverence for the Lord might be cultivated in him. Think about how busy Israel's kings must have been. Think about the busyness of that administration, okay? And all the things that, that, that the king had to have, you know, eyes to see and, and, and ears to hear, right? But in all of that, God says, look, here's what I need from you. I need you to devote yourself to the reading of the law in order that you might lead the people in the fear of the Lord. There's this direct connection in this text between the reading of the word and the cultivation of the fear of the Lord in the heart. I'm going to put it real simply. Spending time with God in his word cultivates fear for him. Spending time with God in his word cultivates that loving reverence for God. It's a powerful teaching. Several years ago, I, I had a mentor of mine who, who told me something that was uh, I didn't really want to hear, but I needed to hear it. He said, I don't think you leave very much margin for God. What are you talking about? He said, I don't think you leave very much margin in your life for God. He said, you just go wall to wall, you know, from one end of the page to the other. You're filling it up. You fill up your schedule. I hear you talk about all these things you're doing. And it's not that they're bad things. Those are good things. He says, a lot of times I hear you, you know, it's like you're doing a lot of things for God. But, but the page is so full of all the things you're doing for God. I think you've completely forgotten to take time to just be with God. And he was absolutely right. Because, because being busy was feeding a real sick part of my heart. I, I kind of wore my busyness like a badge of honor. I'm probably the only person who's ever done that, okay? But I wore my busyness like a badge of honor. And I'm probably the only person who's ever felt this way, you know. But I, for me, the busier I was, the more important I felt. And so, like, running around, being, like, really busy made me feel like I had value. It made me feel really important. Again, he says, you probably don't struggle with that, right? But I did. And this mentor of mine, he called that out. He said, look, I worry about you because you're not leaving any like, margin for God. And that's supposed to be really important in your life. And since that time, I, I've become a big believer in what my mentor called margin. Um, leaving time for contemplation. Leaving time for reflection. I realize we, we live in really unreflective times. 
just kind of swing from one thing to the next to the next to the next. And like we never even think about what we just did. It's just really unreflective. So I've become a big believer in breath prayer, which we talked about a couple months ago. In making time to hear a word from God, not just mining God's word as a source of information, but to, to read God's word for transformation. To not read God's word because, you know, Sunday's coming and I've got to get up and I have something to say. So, you know, Lord, I really need you to come through with something here. But instead to read God's word just as a disciple who longs to be in the presence of God. And from time to time for me, I'm just talking, you know, man to man here, okay? You know, so for me, from time to time, that temptation still comes back up for me, men. You know, to, to, to like run around and to be really busy and to think my busyness somehow gives me kind of like value and, and self-importance. You know, there's still that temptation from time to time. But I'm telling you, it happens a lot less frequently because I've learned to love the, the margin time with God. The way Noah puts it, as we were talking about this this week, that a lot of times we, we work for Sabbath, you know, like we work like a dog so that we can eventually then take vacation, so we can have, you know, Saturday and we can, you know, do all the things we have to do then, but at least we're not at work, right? So we can work our fingers to the bone like for Sabbath. And he says the biblical idea is never to work for Sabbath, but to work from Sabbath. As a time of peace and rest and communion we experience with God so life-giving that actually sustains us for the days ahead how much margin do you leave for god psalm 46 10 says be still and know that i am god and we sing that sometimes and, and it's a really like sweet peaceful song but that that word is not peaceful for me uh, that word is indicting for me because what i hear in that is god saying that there is a way of knowing him that only comes through stillness that only comes to repent of the idolatry of our busyness. Slow down enough to enter into his presence. And I believe that's true, but it is deeply convicting. The king of Israel was to have the, the law of God, the word of God, written upon this, this, this scroll, this document, so that he could read it, but, but then again, so he could be this model Israelite. Many scholars use that kind of language to say that the king was to be out front, leading the people in covenantal faithfulness to God. He was to be at the front of the line. That's why he was to read from the word of God every day, so that when all eyes were on the king, he would be leading the people in the right direction, leading them in faithfulness. And again, that's where this word has such powerful relevance for us today as well, because we have a, a tremendous opportunity to model faithfulness in our families, especially on a day like today, Father's Day, when we're thinking about fathers and, and children. We've talked about that act of modeling repeatedly throughout this series. We talked about Paul and how he modeled things for Timothy, and then how Timothy is commanded to be a model, an example, back to the believers. And here, how the, the king is to model faithfulness before the people. And just like Israel's king, we have a responsibility to be out front, to be leading our families, to model a life of obedience to those who are around us. I love what Jeff said a moment ago when he was leading us in our time around the table. He said it was so true. 
said, look, I'm humbled and I'm honored and I'm doing this, but I know these words resonate most loudly in the ears of these two little ones who are right here with me. And then he's right. Dads, granddads, uncles, like whoever, you know, there are these little ones who, who are watching. And so from this Deuteronomy teaching, I take this as well, this, this point that we shouldn't ever underestimate the power of modeling faithfulness to our families. You're one of the primary disciplers in the lives of your children. Let them see that you fear the Lord. Let them see that you're, that you're living in obedience to his commands. Let them see that you know what really matters. Okay, we're going to close out the series with one final passage of scripture. It's, um, it's a final Old Testament text, but uh, I think it's, it's a really, really good point that I, I want us to close out on. It's uh, a story about David, but really not about David. It's about some men who are surrounding King David. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you'll turn there to 2 Samuel 23, we'll wrap up here by looking at this, this story that's recorded for us of the mighty men of King David. These fierce warriors who rally around his cause. Let me close out by looking at this. 2 Samuel 3, uh, starting in verse 8. This is what God's word says. It says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. I'll go ahead and tell you, I cannot pronounce some of these names, okay? Uh, this guy, Josheb, I don't even know. We're going to call him JB, okay? And uh, so JB was uh, the chief of the three. And uh, this is all we get, just this little snippet, okay? Uh, he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. You know? Wouldn't you like to have a little more detail, you know? I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. 800 against one, he has a spear and he kills them all. Um, that's all you get, okay? Uh, next here, uh, next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, uh, the son of Dodo. Go ahead and laugh, okay? Uh, you may not like the name your parents gave you, but it could be worse, all right? You could be son of Dodo. Um, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So again, another powerful, powerful story. We wish we had a little more detail, but that's all we get. Next, there's Shammah, all right? Again, son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines gathered together uh, where there was a plot of land full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But this guy, he took his stand in the midst of the, the plot of ground and he defended it. You know, you're not getting across here like over my dead body is, is kind of the deal. And he struck down the Philistines, and again, the Lord worked a great victory. So we have these, these three men who are listed here. These are, you know, Israelite uh, versions of the Avengers. I mean, these are the stories that little, you know, boys in Jerusalem grew up hearing, and I want to be like them. Okay, and it all feeds into uh, this next story that really shows the heart of these men, presumably these three men verse 13 three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to david at the cave of adullam when a band of the philistines was encamped in the valley of rephaim david was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the philistines was then at bethlehem and david said longingly oh that someone would give me 
the water to drink out of the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. And they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and, uh, uh, by the gate, and they carried it, and they brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their own lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. It seems to me that David makes kind of an offhanded comment. He's there, he's with these men, they're engaged in battle, and he's just kind of like talking, and he makes this, again, what I think is just an offhanded comment. Boy, that water from that well in Bethlehem, let me tell you, it is the best water you've ever had. It is cold, it is clear, it just hits the spot. Man, I wish somebody would go and get me a drink of that water because it is so good, you know. I used to use this passage as as a way of teaching that David kind of misunderestimates his influence there. And I think it's a fair point, because these men, they get up and go, right? David says, boy, I wish I had that water. And these men, so they, they, they fight their way across enemy lines, you know? I don't know, do they sneak in? Do they go at dark? Do they hack their way across? I don't know, but they get this water, and they bring it to David, and they bow down, and they say, here you go, here's your water. And David's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, for water, like, what? why did you do, you know, I'm not going to drink this, he says. And so he, he pours it out before the Lord. What, what does that mean? He, it's like he makes an offering out of it. Because he refuses to drink this water that for him represents the lifeblood of those men who are willing to risk their lives. Here's the thing I want to point out about this story as we wrap up today and as we wrap up this series. Okay? These men were completely sold out to the will of the king. They're completely sold out to the will of the king, so much so that if he said he wanted to drink the water, they took it upon themselves to risk their lives to go and get what the king wanted. They are so devoted to obedience to the word of the king and the will of the king that if, if he wants water, the king gets water. And if that means we've got to draw our weapons and we have to fight our way over to get the water, then we will do that. But that is what is hailed here in this story as the heart of these men who are so completely sold out to the will of the king that they are remembered in the annals of Israelite history. And more so than that, the church now even looks at these holy texts and says, if you want to know what a mighty man for God is, look at these three guys whose names we can't pronounce, (laughs) but whose hearts show us what it looks like to be so completely sold out to the will of the king. And what I want you to know, men, Ladies, I want you to hear this too, but men especially, I want you to hear this, okay? If you want to be a mighty man for God, God might call you to do some great and amazing and wonderful things. And if he does that, that's that's him, that's his prerogative, okay? But if you want to be a mighty man for the Lord, I know this. It's as simple as being completely sold out to the will of the king. And you cannot underestimate the value of simple obedience to the will of the king. In, 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 the, in the kingdom of God, that makes you great. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care if the world considers you to just be, you know, a has-been. 
I don't care if in the eyes of your family, nobody else kind of gets it. I mean, it doesn't matter. We, we can go through all these things. We can kind of feel sorry for ourselves and say, boy, you know, I wish I was this. I wish I was that. At the end of the day, if you want to be a great man for God, I want you to hear this. God is looking for some fierce warriors who are so sold out to the will of the king that they will live in radical obedience to his will and his word over and against the will and the word of the world. When you do that, God is honored. You have no idea who is watching you, who you are modeling faithfulness for. So the last word I hope you hear as we take this down and as we move on to the next thing, I hope you hear this. God is looking for some men who are so sold out to the will of the king that they're ready to live in obedience to his will and to his word. Man, I hope you let that sink into your heart. Satan has a lot of messages that he tries to put on our heart. I hope you'll let God put this one on your heart. Because it's life changing. We're about to stand and sing in a moment. It's a time of response. You've heard me say many times, there are a lot of ways you can respond. But if you need to share something publicly, if you need us to pray for you, come down front, we'll pray. If you need us to tell the church about something, do that. We'll do that and then we'll pray. But today is the day, if you're ready to make that stand, if you're ready to, to live in that kind of radical obedience to the king, to the will of the king, just know this, Satan's going to work in any way he can to keep you from thinking that you qualify. And I'll tell you, you don't. <laughs> Neither do I. Neither does any man who's standing here. That's why we need a savior to die for our sins, and that's why he made this possible. Because you need to respond to the grace that allows us to live in obedience to the will of the king. I hope you'll do that. Because he stands ready to receive you as his son, as his child today. For it is given in the name of Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, who makes all things new. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stand together now and let's sing.